0: Welcome to Automated. I'm your host, Mark Verbenkov and in this weekly podcast, we will be exploring the impact of emerging technology on jobs, society, as well as us, with business and technology leaders, researchers, and independent professionals across the world. So this week's episode is going to be a little bit of an inverted one. So I was actually invited to speak about automation, uh, the future of impact on technology and other things by Tammy Liang. This is one of the hosts of the Data for Future podcast. So we actually discussed many different topics uh, from automation to AI, VR, and even some of the potential impacts of COVID. So I really found that the conversation was interesting and engaging, but it ended up being quite long. So I've gone through and edited the more than one hour conversation down to the more kind of relevant talking points for this podcast. Uh, But if you want to hear and see the entire conversation, it'll be up on the Automated Podcast YouTube channel. Uh, also, do check out Tammy and Pavlo's podcast. Uh, again, this is Data for Future. Uh, if you're looking for discussions focused on the intersection between data and sustainability, I think they have a lot of really interesting discussions and episodes out there for you to listen to.
1: ...by the topic, and we want to bring it to the show to share with everyone. And the very first topic we talked about during our conversation was... Emerging technologies such as AI, automation, vehicles, or virtual reality, how they are impacting the workforce for now and for the society in the long run. But among which we focus a lot on the topic of unemployment. We had this argument among if the emerging technology such AI will cause more unemployment on the way. And we had a pretty big disagreement. That was about a year ago when we had the conversation. So the first question first, Mark, do you, have you changed your idea about technology and employment?
0: Well, first of all, thanks, Tammy, for uh, inviting me onto the podcast. It's uh, it's great to be here. I'm also glad that you were able to start and keep going with the podcast. Um, yeah, for your question, to respond to like whether AI will cause unemployment, right? There, there's really two different camps that you can fall into. And I may have been playing death's advocate, but doing my own podcast for the last year or so has changed my thinking on it a little bit, or maybe not changed it, but maybe made it a little bit deeper. Right, so uh, in one camp, you can think of AI and I guess any other emerging technology that that causes automation as creating something called technological unemployment, mm-hmm. and this is uh, is where technology replaces the human employee, right? So it creates a job to become obsolete. Uh, A good example of this is like a horse carriage driver, right? It's something very visual that all of us can remember the pictures. There are no real horse carriage drivers anymore. I mean, they exist in like tourist attractions and things like that, but the car replaced horses in general, the horse carriage driver and many other people, right? So you would say that those people have been made obsolete due to technological unemployment. Now, the other argument is something called creative destruction right or falls within the camp of that and this is maybe where we were discussing the point on ai right where new emerging technologies uh, destroy but then they also create so you have ai right now uh, as part of the hype cycle Mm -hmm. many people are believing that it is kind of the last technology that humans need to create and it will create tons of unemployment if not all unemployment for for potentially all jobs that humans do, which, again, going back to our discussion, maybe that was a little bit hyperbolic and I was taking that point of view in order to spur on the discussion. But yeah, through the the podcast that I have myself, through the discussions that I've been having and through the research that I've been doing, uh, we are currently seeing now AI, to an extent, destroy some jobs or at least transforming them. Um, However, in the long run, there is... I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but there is a high percentage chance that many jobs will be automated mm-hmm. uh, and we can get into the whys and into the, the what specifically later on. But uh, yeah, if we want to kind of recap on that discussion, uh, currently AI is destroying some jobs, but in the long run, yeah, it has a, a great potential to, to eliminate many different kinds of jobs.
1: Okay, so I think we are more or less uh, reach to a closer agreement on that. But it's very interesting to note how the, your idea definitely evolved throughout the year when you work on your podcast, Automated. I'm curious, what do you think was your biggest learning throughout all these interviews you've done and all the research preparation you've been doing? And are there some cases or discoveries that really change your perception on this topic?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think for the most part, it's been just a deepening appreciation and understanding of these emerging technologies, right? Uh, One of the uh, interesting technologies that I've personally been quite interested in over the last year is virtual reality. So I've had a lot of uh, virtual reality CEOs come on. And uh, one of the interesting things that I've learned from that is that of course, it's an emerging technology and there's a lot of hype around it, especially a couple of years ago uh, when the hype was kind of at its all time peak. But now that the, the industry is getting uh, or has been flooded with a lot of investment, there's a lot of new uh, services, uh, tools and um, even products that have been built out over the last couple of years. And what this is leading to is uh, kind of more potential to actually have new jobs being created in the VR space. Okay. Right, uh, And maybe we'll talk a little bit later on in the in the episode, in the discussion here, but it's also been highly influenced because of COVID, right? Because we're all living in this socially distanced world now or socially distanced era. Uh, VR, though it might not be uh, fully utilized right now, uh, many of the people that I've had on are definitely thinking that, yeah, maybe give it another five, ten years and there will be uh, maybe not full mass adoption, but there will be a greater amount of adoption of VR and use in it than previously believed. And I I one year ago, if you had asked me about VR, I would be I'd know a little bit about it, but I wouldn't have kind of the level of appreciation that I do now about what the potential future of it
1: is. So among the many branches and impacts that technology can bring us, you focus more over the aspect of employment. And we can talk about AR or anything else. How do you think that will impact the workforce?
0: Yeah, sure thing. So, I mean, VR, yeah, it's 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 going to impact a number of different uh, parts of society over the next couple of years if these predictions uh, stick to it. But specifically with uh, employment, one of the big things that uh, it's going to impact is training, right? So, there's um, one specific use case which uh, you might find interesting. There's a, a training center in Finland mm-hmm. for truck drivers. And bus drivers, so like large vehicle uh, drivers, and there's only kind of one main center in all of Finland. And with a new government regulation, uh, these truck and bus drivers had to renew their uh, licenses through this training every single year. However, this one center only had I can't remember the exact numbers. Say say fifty buses and fifty trucks, or but so it wasn't enough. You know, physical, tangible devices, right? in this case, buses and, and trucks, in order to train all of these uh, drivers out there. So what they implemented was a VR training station, right? Uh, it was also a bit of a test because they didn't know whether the VR training would be as good as actually training on a truck. So there was a uh, a multi-year study that was done with this. And at the end, it was found that, so a number of things. One, the uh, amount of people that could be trained on it was of course vastly greater because you, all you need to do is put on a headset, you can have a couple little training sessions and then uh, move on to, to the next thing. Uh, the resources that are saved are vast. You don't need to burn up any uh, fossil fuels or or even have a, a a truck or a bus in that sense. And the third was that though it wasn't uh, 100% as good as actually training on a truck, the the um, results were comparable uh, in the like 90 percentile range, where somebody who had only been trained on a VR headset um, was then put in a truck or a bus at the end of that training session, and they were able to perform at about 90%, even in some cases a little bit higher, uh, as somebody who had only been trained on a actual physical truck or bus. So the the VR experience was the technology now is good enough to enable that these training centers uh, are good enough to replace the the physical uh, situation.
1: That in terms of employment, that actually enables more training. That means more people can come to the job. So that's the one case we're talking about where technology is creating more jobs for people. But meanwhile, are there cases that's going to the, the other direction?
0: Sure. Well, if we want to stick with VR, so it's it's a little bit um, of a double-edged sword, right? So so yes, we see uh, the trainings are enabling new people to p- perhaps come in. Even those, um, uh, those drivers that I was explaining are able to keep their jobs. Mm-hmm. But you also have to look at kind of the entire uh, industry, right? So if you have just VR headsets and no more training centers, then the people that are actually, uh, you know, typically setting up an entire workshop for the trainees or the actual um, you know, experienced truck drivers who actually do the training for the people, those people might be losing jobs. It's a little bit of job creation and job destruction each time that one of these emerging technologies come in. The the I guess the ultimate question here, which hasn't been answered as far as I'm able to find out is specifically within the Uh, VR training uh, sector is whether one is greater than the other, right? Whether more jobs will be destroyed or whether more jobs will be created. Um, And this is, I think, something that like many different reports out there are starting to look into. Uh, It's a little bit harder for emerging technologies because there's not that much data about them. There's just not enough years of experience with these kinds of technologies out there. Um, But with more... Uh, stable technologies that have been there for some time, Uh, robots, for instance, then yeah, it's the data is a little bit more clear that uh, more jobs um, are destroyed for every new uh, like robot, for instance, that is that is uh, implemented in in different kind of uh, companies.
1: Mm, for sure, like the balance is depending on the industry never, we can never figure out a certain number or the question will have an answer. But what fascinates me is, let's use the case you're talking about with the VR and truck driver dra- training. I think to a certain scale, this kind of technology deployment only apply to maybe companies who can afford them. And sometimes if you're not at scale, the automation of certain tasks doesn't really make sense because the investment of the technology requires too much and then people tend to cling back to using human force. Um, In this transition, like I see this as a constant barrier where I don't see that automation will take many jobs very soon because there are just so many areas, like cleaning the street is... It's a very tedious task and uh, you need to do your job like no matter the weather, no matter the location. But if we imagine like a fully automated solution to clean the street for us, it's hard to imagine like who will invest money into this and make everything fully automated. So for me, certain job types, they're going to at least survive for a very long time and they're not going to be impacted by the automation even though they're the most basic and the the jobs that need to be replaced the most
0: yep uh absolutely i couldn't i couldn't agree further with you so i think you also hit on one of the key things here which is uh the investment cost right Uh, because uh, a lot of these automation solutions whether we're looking at robots autonomous vehicles ai etc are very pricey uh you're absolutely right that uh uh, certain businesses, even certain cities or even certain countries um, couldn't afford a lot of the kind of full automation uh, mm-hmm. solutions that are that are available, right? So what you see is a lot of, you know, kind of half solutions or part solutions uh, in the in the um, full time work that I do. I also work on large um, collaborative European projects, and one of them has to do with collaborative robots, which is a robot arm that is able to sense when a human employee is around and slow down and stop uh, rather than, you know, the kind of traditional industrial robots that don't know that you're there and might even crush you or break an arm or something like that. So they have to be kind of enmeshed in a cage. Um, the the Collaborative robots, which are an emerging technology, right, so they're not as, say, developed as the traditional robots, Um, they are a little bit cheaper. Um, so they are more easy to implement for, say, a small business, mm-hmm. an SME, as we as we call it in the work that we do. Um, so you have a, a cheaper solution mm-hmm. that only partially automates certain things. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So but it's it's uh, you're right. As things get uh, more expensive, fewer uh, solutions are available. However, once the technology improves to such an extent, once the cost of that technology mm-hmm. uh, Are reduced, or once you reach economies of scale, when you're able to fully uh, grow out your company, then those technologies are going to be cheaper. They're going to be able to be implemented in different places and in a wider, I guess you could say, at scale uh, solutions.
1: Totally agree. Other than VR, which we've been talking quite a lot about, are there any other technologies that you think they're very promising? And there will once we reach a point when the technology is advanced enough, we can see a huge impact.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, as we talked about at the beginning, I mean AI is one of the one of the main ones, and we can talk about it a, a little bit later on. But also, um, as we were talking about the kind of Gartner hype cycle, I, I would say that we're right—maybe not at the peak, but we're, we're very close to the the hype cycle of the autonomous vehicle market, for okay. instance. Right. So, um, I mean. Uh, Nobody does it better than Elon Musk with with Tesla, who I know that you're a fan of. So yeah, we're, we're experiencing kind of almost weekly or even daily uh, large news bits about the autonomous vehicle market. So there is a lot of promise there. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of interest for investors because um, there have been some numbers that have come out recently saying that, you know, the robo taxi, uh, this is obviously the autonomous taxis in cities um, across the world could lead or could be a one trillion dollar market just the taxis themselves we're not talking about uh bus transport or um boat transport or rail or or long-haul trucks or anything it's just taxis right just uh urban vehicles that could be a one trillion dollar uh market so there's there's tremendous uh hype surrounding this technology right now um However, this uh, this is one of the things that we were talking about uh, at a, in a previous discussion was that uh, you know there's kind of real automation versus uh, or hyped automation versus real automation I could say. So the um, most of the press coverage of autonomous vehicles is focused around this robo taxi, right? The the urban. Vehicle That can take you from your house to your job and back again or from your house or from your from your work to your groceries and, and kind of anywhere in the in the city uh, that has gotten, I would say, 99% of the attention, if not more. However, it's only at, say, level four, right? If uh, Maybe I can step back a bit. There, there's kind of five levels of uh, autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, zero being there's like no digital uh, autonomous support. And level five is you don't even have a steering wheel or a gas or brake pedal. It's just you're a full passenger. Everybody's a passenger in the car. And the, uh, the AI system in the car does everything for you. Mm-hmm. So we're only really at kind of the best solutions right now at level four. Elon Musk, especially this year, has raised that hype cycle a little bit more by saying that Tesla Motors will have level five by the end of this year, right? In December of 2020. Very exciting if that actually happens. We'll we'll see. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll see. We'll see. Right. But uh, when it comes to other like actual implemented fully autonomous transportation solutions, there's already many examples out there. Mm -hmm. So we have fully autonomous trains. Right. Because they're relatively simple. It goes along one track and you only need somebody to either slow down or stop the vehicle or I guess then start it up again. So the the amount of uh, situations that a train can come into is vastly less complicated than a vehicle in a city, which is why there are numerous uh, uh, fully autonomous, like level five autonomous trains out there Uh, also for metro uh, um, cars or the subway and things like that. I lived in Toulouse a number of years ago, I think even some seven years ago, and they already had fully autonomous metro stations throughout the whole city. Right. Uh-huh. right. So there are a number of these technologies that have been implemented. Uh-huh. Uh, same thing for autonomous ships, right? This, this hardly ever gets any news coverage, but we have uh, a number of autonomous ships already traversing the English Channel for goods, uh, I don't know if they've been used for passengers lately, but uh, definitely for goods and also uh, for planes right because you're you're not likely to crash into another plane when you're in the skies because the skies are so so big and so clear. Uh, we do have level five autonomous uh, planes and that's now actually being moved into the military but but that's a whole other discussion for for another time maybe. Um, so yeah, if I can just uh, summarize it quickly, we have kind of the hyped level of automation which, Typically gets the most amount of press coverage because it's exciting. It's it's going to impact more people's lives, but it's maybe a fair amount of time off. Like autonomous vehicles could be, you know, a decade or two decades away before they're fully implemented. Whereas we have kind of the real uh, autonomous solutions that are already in place, which rarely get any news coverage, but they're already there. Um, which is which is kind of an interesting uh, juxtaposition between the two.
1: I'm sure people also express different concerns toward these emerging technologies, not only in terms of employment, because if there is automated vehicle, means drivers are going to be gone. And there is a more automated plane, that means the cost is going to be lower and people is going to be easier to travel. However, we also need to think about if there is more planes flying in the sky, we are closer to the Uh, a 1.5 degree allowance. So what are some concepts that you think people are are the top concerns together with the technology?
0: Yeah, certainly. So, uh, of course, I like talking about uh, unemployment uh, concerns, uh, job concerns. But there are two other kind of really interesting concerns, I think, that um, don't really get talked about too much. So uh, one is uh, cybersecurity. right so uh, when you have a automated vehicle for instance it's 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 significantly easier to automate uh, an automated vehicle than it is say a 1950s vehicle which has no uh, you know digital parts in it right so you can you can then extrapolate that to all different parts of society uh, or civilization if you even want to go a little bit bigger Um, you can have uh, fully automated manufacturing plants right so there there are fewer humans if if not no humans um in there it's easy or easier to hack into a robot Mm -hmm. than it is to hack into a human right Mm -hmm. same thing for uh logistics maybe you've seen there was a there was a, a a viral video a couple of years ago. It was with the uh, Amazon warehouse vehicles. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the like little orange. They're called autonomous guided vehicles. So they just very simple. They lift up boxes, they move them around. Um, but they're in something called a dark warehouse, right? So you don't need lights on anymore because there's no human workers in there. Um, but it's just thousands of robots moving, working, collaborating in order to move the goods that you and I enjoy from from Amazon. So yeah, hacking is a is a big concern. Yeah. I think there are also like a number of different prizes out there from a number of these companies that are uh, bringing about these autonomous solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, most notably, uh, Tesla had a I think it was a hundred thousand, if not a million dollar prize, uh, several years ago for anybody that could hack one of their vehicle models. Okay. Right? Okay. It didn't happen, so they're kind of robust in the in the hacking sense. But that's one of the industry leaders, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're definitely going to have problems as time goes on, as more of these autonomous um, technologies are implemented with uh, hacking concerns. Mm-hmm. But those are, I would say, smaller, like, localized problems. Yeah. Uh, right? You could probably hack, you know, one vehicle. You can probably hack one robot, but it would be significantly more challenging to hack, like, an entire warehouse or an entire uh, autonomous fleet. Mm-hmm. The kind of more systemic problem... It actually came from an article, and I have it written down here because I think it's really interesting for people. I recommend you to have it in the show notes, but it's also for people that want to listen to it. It's by James P. Crutchfield in a 2009 article, The Hidden Fragility of Complex Systems. So um, very, very interesting article. It's not too long. I recommend anybody who's interested in this to look into it. As I said, it was written in 2009, and he was talking about the transportation system across the globe becoming more interconnected, becoming more complex, becoming more interdependent. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it becomes more fragile Mm -hmm. at a systemic level, right? So many people have said he's a little bit of a prophet because he actually uses a virus hitchhiking on uh, transportation systems that could eventually lead to a global pandemic, Right. So uh, many people are saying, OK, well, he was, you know, I think at the time he was talking about uh, the H1N1 h virus, but uh, it's much more relevant for today's yeah. you know, COVID uh, situation. So uh, I think the interesting and relevant point here is that, you know, this article talks about as systems become more interdependent, they become more linked, they become more of a system it's much easier for the entire system to collapse rather than one small isolated aspect of the system to collapse which that which then can be repaired or or replaced uh, so we're really looking at as we move forward into a kind of an automated future a bigger kind of systemic uh, collapse or systemic risk rather than these smaller changes
1: yes very interesting for the side of cybersecurity for sure it's something especially the Big tech companies start to pay a lot of attention and investment into because the potential disaster is just purely out of the imagination. Like if we look at the budget for the US Army versus for education, we see like to defense, you need to invest so much more and uh, to think about so much more. And on the other side, I really like the idea you shared about the system fragility when it's getting complicated. That's also another question I wanted to ask you about. As we go into more advanced technology, more automation, it's super exciting. We can just Maybe there is a tool so easy to use. There are two buttons and we can achieve whatever we want. Maybe we can just think in our head and the things will happen. But we reach to a point where we really don't understand the very basic about how things work. And I think we as a society are rising higher and higher from the ground of the knowledge level the other day we were having conversation with our friend who talked about nowadays we don't need to remember any knowledge because google is at our fingertip whatever we don't know we just google we need to learn how to search how to find the answer using tools built by other people rather than finding ourselves do you see that as a? do you have some thoughts on that in terms of how the development of technology is balancing with how people really learn and understand and interact.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is actually a really interesting topic. So I've had uh, multiple debates or, you know, conversations on this topic over the years, um, especially with people that are at a different generation, right? A little bit older. This, this seems to be a trend that there's always this idea that the newer generations are getting ruined, Right, because of new technologies, uh, you know, our generation—it's cell phone use. Right, we're losing, as you said, our ability to think, our ability to calculate, right, our ability to to think in the ways in which previous generations uh, attributed value to. And uh, from from what I've been reading over the last few years, this is uh, this is not a new trend. This is not going to go away. Right, if uh, uh, in in the next couple decades, if we have children. We are going to be critiquing them and their generation about the, the things that we value, right? Probably a good, deep, interesting conversation is something that we value now mm-hmm. that might not be relevant in uh, 20, 40 years time from now. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is interesting is, yeah, we we are potentially losing some skills, some um, characteristics that previous generations valued, mm-hmm. but then we're also gaining new ones right like as you said our ability to uh, search anything on google impossible to think of 20 years ago for for our parents generation Um, however we are losing the ability to to maybe retain that information as you were saying so essentially what does this uh, conversation come down to it comes down to what do you attribute value to what does society attribute value to and then how do you argue to people that think you know okay, it's really important to retain knowledge in your, in your own personal brain, right? Rather than having it stored on the collective brain. You can make that argument because it was valuable 20 years ago. Um, I mean, I would still argue that it's still valuable to retain information in your own mind. But as uh, the searching capabilities becomes easier and easier, and as it becomes less important to uh, retain information because searches become so uh, easy... Um, that argument starts to uh, dwindle. It starts to fade a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the same argument for... Uh, any other uh, skill that we see, that we value now. Um, we value it because we're young, because, you know, we're ambitious, because we're using our skills in the, in the world. I do think that, you know, give it another 40, 50 years, we will probably be holding on to the vast majority of those skills and valuing them still while society has moved on to other skills that we don't necessarily value because they are different and foreign to us. And I think this is kind of the... the um, generational argument that comes all the time uh, and i think it's an interesting one but i also think that it's one that's going to continue
1: one interesting thing i like to think about is down the road maybe one day in terms of religion nationality we talk about okay do you use the product from apple or google or you use alexa or Apple Pod in your house. I see. Nowadays we are we grew more and more reliant with those service providers who enable the basic day to day working life, communication between friends, how we are social and entertain ourselves. But on the other side is really creating this distance and polarization of the society. And talking about unemployment, people who take the trend. Change your skill set, constantly learn, can maybe take advantage of it, and then s- stay on top of the game and be benefit from this changing cycle. However, there are also people who are not willing to or unable to fit the trend of the society. They're not digital. They don't like it. They don't have the uh, knowledge resource to think about that. And then those people we think are eventually gonna be the people who drop into the unemployment pool. Maybe they will engage in more um, jobs like a service, entertainment, art, which I don't think will be replaced by robots as much in the future. But meanwhile, um, what should those people do?
0: Yeah, that's... Um, that's a- Bit of a sad and complicated question uh, simultaneously. So uh, yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head here. But this is all. Remember, this has also happened in all transitions in the past, right? Mm-hmm. So I used the example of uh, you know the horse buggy versus the car, right? That's kind of one of the the more recent in the last hundred years. That was a significant transformation, right? You had uh, many people. Uh, completely out of work you know their their life skills were no longer useful on the market um, but then you also had other people that transformed their business their skills to make use and value for the new emerging car market right many of the like the large car suppliers uh, or, or part suppliers i should say actually used to be carriage suppliers right they, they've evolved over the last hundred years um, so there is of course this capacity to survive these transitions. But more to your point about those people that can't necessarily do that. Um, maybe one other thing that's quite interesting is that things are a little bit different from back in the horse and buggy days, right? Yeah. The, mm-hmm. Things move a lot faster. Mm-hmm. So even even if uh, some people are You know, they have the desire to, as you said, continuously learn, uh, take on new skills, uh, get new education to become relevant to the job market. They might not be able to simply because things are moving too quickly or because there's now you need to be hyper specialized on something in order to become successful at it. Right. And it just Mm -hmm. takes it just takes too long. This kind of goes to a partial answer to that anyways, is uh, it goes to some different kind of regulations or or policies, I should say, uh, that are starting to creep up, especially now with the COVID situation. Uh, The most uh, famous or well-known out there is, of course, universal basic income. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is something that has been around for decades. Um, It's been talked about by both uh, sides of the aisle, both left and right. However, we are now seeing, specifically because of COVID, because Many people used to think, oh, it's going to be automation that's going to bring about a universal basic income because jobs are going to be erased. But no, it's it's a tiny little virus, <laughs> um, a little microscopic virus that has forced everybody into shut into lockdown, into shutting down their business, right? An enforced shutdown of your business. Um, you essentially being are being made obsolete simply because of new government uh, regulation and policies. So because of that, we now have, of course, a lot of uh, stimulus plans across Europe across america and most of the most of the world mm-hmm. um, and there's a new resurgence of this idea of universal basic income uh, it has as i said it's been around for for decades uh, one of the earliest uh like full pilot uh studies of this was actually done in canada in a in a province called manitoba which not too many people know of but this was already in the 70s so some 50 years ago um, it was uh, it was an entire community that was given uh, between one or sorry one and a half to two thousand Canadian dollars per month, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fixed for inflation, and uh, they were given it for I believe three to four years, right? So it wasn't just a six month period; it was it was a considerable amount of time. Um, of course, then the government in Canada shifted. Uh, it was a little bit more of the uh, conservative government, and they shut down the the project. But um, sociologists and anthropologists since then have been looking at that one study because it was one of the longest and it was one of the first. And what they find is that a lot of socially aberrant behaviors, you know, uh, crime, violence, uh, drug use, pregnancy, uh, unwanted pregnancies, teenage pregnancies, etc., were drastically reduced in the community that had this universal basic income implemented over the three years Mm -hmm. so i don't want to just say like this only happened in canada because some people might think oh it's just in canada but not specifically this um this uh pilot site but many different other forms of universal basic income have been piloted across the world Mm -hmm. uh there's a an example of Alaska, right? They have this uh, oil dividend. Every citizen in Alaska gets, uh, I can't remember the exact number, a couple hundred or if if it's like a 1000 or $2,000 per year uh, simply because they live in Alaska. Mm -hmm. It's not universal basic income per se, but it's part of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think most interestingly, you have examples in places where money can really go far. So there are uh, numerous cases in India where you have Entire, not just a community, but entire smaller towns are given universal, uh, a form of universal basic income, right? They're given enough support where they have enough money to to satisfy their means for a considerable amount of, of time, two years, three years sometimes. Um, and then they're able to uh, be measured against uh, another town as a control group right. where more or less the rates of violence and crime, et cetera, were the same before. And again, we see the same sort of thing. We get a lot of these uh, aberrant social behaviors decreased when universal basic income is implemented there, but I think the more interesting part here is that you see something a little bit different, and that's you have uh, new higher levels of entrepreneurism, mm-hmm. right? So you have people who have their basic necessities taken care of, and they know. I think this is also a key point. They know that it will be taken care of for the considerable future. So it's not like a six-month project. You 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 know you hoard that money mm-hmm. in. Uh, in fear of the day that this project is done. No, there's this there's this continuity with the projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, as I said, you have these communities where they they feel at ease for some some of them the first time ever, right? Mm-hmm. If they're like a small farming community or a far, small farming town, um, they're you know kind of at the risk of different weather patterns. But now doesn't really matter what the weather does. They have enough money to, to do uh, what it is they need to do to survive. So they're able to take on uh, new uh, water purification uh, businesses or new kind of seed planting businesses or all these interesting kinds of uh, entrepreneurial ventures that you wouldn't find without universal basic income in that sense.
1: Well, when we are talking looking toward the future and talking about unemployment, universal basic income is usually stick out as the one of the best solutions. However, as you introduced it, it seems very promising through the research examples and the tests. But are there any drawbacks of it? Like, wouldn't people just be lazy and do nothing and then people abuse the money? How can the system really be balanced and fair if certain people really work very hard and the money and the wealth they generate, why they should be distributed to other people like what are some concerns behind
0: yeah i think i think you touched on some of the main concerns there so um uh, i think this is also why universal basic income was always closely tied to automation Mm -hmm. right because if you have a significant percentage of the population that it's not that they don't want to do something it's just that they can't right because there's just too much automation that there aren't enough jobs then what are these people going to do right it doesn't matter how ambitious you are which is the the real fear for the kind of the far future no matter how ambitious you are there's no job for you to do um this is why universal basic income was kind of always used uh by the by the futurists out there that talk about this as a potential uh, solution or at least partial solution, but no you're right. there are uh, significant drawbacks to universal basic income uh, one of the one of the first ones uh, is that it's very often not universal right it is only in part um, uh, it's it's very expensive right so the actual uh, opportunity to to have it for an entire western you know industrialized country probably not going to happen unless you cut back on a lot of other social Uh, Support schemes, which is uh, there's there's this big argument, especially in America, with where uh, Andrew Yang was explaining, you know, as he was uh, running for for president, uh, he was arguing like, no, you can have both, you can have the support services that are needed as well as universal basic income, Uh, so it was much more of a math argument there. But in other places in the world, that might not be the case, right? There could be cuts to certain social safety nets in order to bring about uh, universal basic income. Uh, one of the other things, which is which you did touch on, right? The the, the laziness argument, right? If people are just given money, what's going to happen? They're just going to you know sit on the couch all day and watch TV. Uh, this I would argue is actually a bit of a myth, right? So in all of the universal basic income pilots that we've seen in all of the tests uh, there is of course a percentage of people that do that but it's typically much lower than expected we're talking like 1% or lower um, typically people want to do something with their lives mm-hmm. even when they have the money to to take care of themselves and they don't need to work mm-hmm. um, one of the things that uh, that was found in a number of these studies across the world so this is this is uh, irrespective of, of, of the culture mm-hmm. Um, you have a number of people having universal basic income and then going out and getting a job, right? Uh, So not just becoming an entrepreneur, but getting a job or keeping their job because they appreciate the social connections. They appreciate, uh, you know, the sense of value, the sense of contributing to a company, or maybe they're working for an NGO and they appreciate something like that. So there are, there are problems with universal basic income, but there are also a lot of these kind of myths that are connected to it. And maybe the last thing that I'll say, which is kind of more my personal critique of universal basic income is the fear that a population will become very much dependent on the government that hands it out,
1: right?
0: Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, that's that's a significant concern, especially depending on which country you're living in. Right? Uh, you come from China. There's lots of you know human rights abuses and issues with the government over there. Um, that's not what we're seeing uh, in totality in the West yet. But what were to happen if you know a government were to have more or less control of a population sure. through doling out this cash? Right? Uh, there, they would be much more able to get away with things because the population would become dependent on them. So I'm not a pessimistic kind of person. I don't like those kind of, uh, you know, even conspiracy ideas out there. But there are things that are brought up in in the discussion surrounding universal basic income.
1: I think the point about how we will grow more reliant on the government is very solid. But is that the problem only for those who rely on universal basic income? Because if you are in the league where you create solutions, technology, and you sell them, you generate enough wealth, you're the one who is the government relying on you in that case. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. So uh, I would say that uh, you could go one step further, saying that the government would then be relying on the automation technologies that those uh, entrepreneurs or, or, or leaders of industry are relying upon, right? Um, but no you you're right the 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 population that receives these cash dividends mm-hmm. Uh, would become reliant on the government uh, and the government would then in essence rely on the people that are actually doing the creation doing the work mm-hmm. so which is which is why i'm a little bit critical of universal basic income if i can throw in my own personal opinion here mm-hmm. I, I don't like the idea of people becoming dependent on a system i prefer you know the the kind of ambitious nature which we've talked about uh previously uh, off off air uh mm-hmm. it, it just it just feels better to be an ambitious person that creates something yourself. The argument for universal basic income for the last 50 years has been when we eventually reach to a more like fully automated society, Mm -hmm. then the kind of question of um, ambition or entrepreneurialism is a little bit moot because there will be such a high level of automation that many people won't uh, be able even to create jobs in that sense.
1: Um. Well, very interesting conversation, Mark. I, I feel we touched a lot upon the future of technology. It's a very broad topic and we touched really many aspects. It's interesting to see your understanding as you developed after like, looking into this spe- specific topic for so long and uh, touched on many specific use cases. Um, are there any other thing you'd like to share?
0: maybe it's kind of a, a final thing I want to leave the audience with maybe, um, a little bit more of a, like a, a tangible action that they can do. Right. If, mm-hmm. if you have maybe a younger audience who are still in school and they're looking, uh, you know, what are some of the skills that I could potentially have? Cool. Uh, what are some of the, the actions that I can do, uh, whether it's in education or otherwise to be still relevant for the future. Right. right? Um, so, uh, I mean, there are there are tons of reports out there. There are tons of books. There are tons of podcasts mm-hmm. that touch on the subject. Uh, it can get really quite complicated quite quickly. For those of you that are interested, uh, I will I will share the links after with you, Tammy. But there's a a really good series of reports from uh, a well known organization called the McKinsey Global Institute. Right there, they, they <laughs> right they're well known. Um, and uh, in this series of five reports, uh, they do touch on like what is the potential of automation, and then what are the kind of uh, skills that will be impacted. So I, I do have a, a little quote here that I think would be relevant to kind of maybe summarize this as well as uh, end, end the podcast on. But uh, So this comes from uh, one of the reports, and it talks about the, the activities that are most susceptible to automation. And these are the physical ones in highly structured and predictable environments, as well as data collection and processing. Right. So it's uh, data is interesting, but if you're involved in the processing or collection of it, you might want to think uh, elsewhere. Uh, this is, of course, taken from the United States, which has a really easy access to the statistics of, of uh, employment figures over there. Um, also, it's interesting to note that these activities, right, the physical ones that I just mentioned, make up 51 percent of all activities in the economy. So we're not, we're not talking about a small percentage. We're talking about more than half of all activities in the next 10 to 20 years will be automated in some way or another. Uh, whether they're actually automated, whether the, uh, you know, the company takes on the technology to do so is another question, but they're actually capable of doing so. Um, and uh, for those of you that are maybe working in these sectors, the places where these are most prevalent in is manufacturing, automation and food services, and uh, retail trade. And I think the interesting thing is that it's it's not just like low-skill uh, job types that, we're, that uh, maybe we talked about before, but it's uh, also middle-skill and even high-paying, high-skill occupations that have this potential to be automated, mm-hmm. which I think is... Um, f- anyways, for me, I can say when I first heard about that, that was very interesting because uh, I always thought it was, you know, the... The low level, the low uh, skill type jobs, uh, you know, my first job ever was uh, working at McDonald's, for instance. Right. I was a line cook. It was very, very repetitive, very easy, very easy to be automated. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it's definitely different things now uh, with the different kind of technologies that we have out there. Um the last thing here i that I will touch on are the specific skills right so those that 's more about the the jobs the occupations in total. Mm-hmm. The specific skills also comes from these reports so if you're if you 're a worker and you 're thinking about the kind of future, uh, think about this: the workers of the future will spend more time on activities that machines are less capable of mm-hmm. right rather obvious but these these are broken down into um, Uh, activities such as managing people applying expertise and communicating with others right much more of these human kind of social uh, interactions so we will be spending less time on predictable physical activities and on collecting and processing data as before uh, where machines already exceed human performances so the last thing i want to say on this is that The skills and capabilities required will also shift, uh, requiring more social and emotional skills uh, and more advanced cognitive capabilities such as logic, reasoning, and creativity. Um, So maybe it's kind of one of the final things uh, that really, when I heard this, it really kind of sparked my imagination and made me think about like what the future of work will be like. Uh, typically, in the medical um, establishment, we have the hierarchy where doctors are at the top and nurses are below them, right? Um, however, if you if you believe in these reports, if you think that there's some sort of validity to all these things that are coming out, that might be inversed or flipped over the next while, right? Because if doctors, especially diagnosticians, are just simply you know spending seven plus years of school to um, repeat certain facts into their mind that they can then see, visualize, and and communicate it to somebody. Uh, whereas maybe in the future, an AI system would be able to do that in a split second mm-hmm. uh, but the real um activity that would be done there would be the communicating of you know say a cancer diagnosis or something else uh, to somebody else and in that sense uh, the nurses would be much more relevant than the doctors themselves so that's just one example this is this is applicable to many different uh, industries uh, across the world but uh, i thought that that was relevant for the for the podcast
1: mm-hmm. i really like your closing thought because personally I don't say it every day, but I'm sure everyone is thinking about, okay, where should I be in the future? Like, where should I position myself? There's so much uncertainty and what should I do to get to where I want to be? I, personally, I learned data. I believe it's the future, but still there is constantly questioning and be it you want to be in the league where you follow the technology trend to enable the change, or you can be on the other side, like... You said like being a nurse doesn't mean is inferior than being a doctor. there's no hierarchy in fact, in the future, when we are talking about automation, the occupations that's more, most worth automating is those very specific expertise jobs because they're high paid, so it's worth the investment to start with, and then like machines doing operations, they are more precise even. However, on the other side, let's say uh, the, a nurse or a teacher for a school that's caring about the kids because they're, they're very human and they need a lot of interaction and unpredictability. Those are actually the, the field where we'll see people will dedicate more time into one day. We, through reading the book of uh, artificial intelligence by Kai Fu Lee, he mentioned how in, in the future, we see, foresee a society where we have majority elder population. And as a society, we're trying to be very smart and use artificial intelligence to help them to live a better life. And they develop really intric- intricate futuristic paths that can basically feel any need the elder people need. They can say to the pad, touch a button and have different entertainment. However, people never use it. And after the research and development, they tried so hard, they don't understand why they don't design too well. But the thing is that they, the older people, they simply don't want to talk with the, a pet. They want a real person. So they will pretend they don't know how to use a tool. They will break it but because they want real human interaction. So it comes to the very basic, like being creative, interpersonal skills, communication, and to build a real true connection. I think those are some valuable skills and the assets we should take in. So talking about technology, but it all comes back to interpersonal and uh, day-to-day life.
0: Yeah, the, the, the human aspect. I mean, uh, as much as I love technology uh, automation, uh, my, my eventual hope is that a lot of these uh, tools, these technologies in place will allow a much more kind of human and interconnected society than we have now. Uh, I really hope that we're just kind of going through a transformational period where yeah, we're sensing a little bit more disconnect between uh, individuals through uh, the use of cell phones and maybe these apps and platforms that we talked about. But uh, a fully automated uh, future, right, if we look you know, far, far into the future, um, is, is one that I would hope uh, just takes care of these kind of mundane tasks to enable a much more rich, vibrant, uh, interconnected society. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Very nice closing note, Mark. Last question. If people want to reach out to you and get to talk more among the topic about automation and um, employment, how should they get in touch?
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, So you can, of course, check out my podcast, uh, automatedpodcast.org. As Tammy said at the beginning, it's a weekly interview podcast where I talk to CEOs and leaders uh, in multiple different industries, uh, but always try to touch on automation and how it's impacting jobs. Um, I'm also um, active on LinkedIn. So you can just find me, Mark Verbenkov, Um, send me me a message, uh, like some of the stuff that I send out. uh, happy Happy to connect.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Mark.
0: Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast and the conversations here, the best way to do this is to go onto Apple Podcasts and leave a review as it helps the algorithm to reach out to new listeners and brings the show to them. Also, feel free to check out the website automatedpodcast.org where you can find the show notes for each episode written articles on the themes of the podcast and a library of resources on the topic of emerging tech and automation also if you want to reach out and leave any feedback or you have any questions about the podcast or any of the conversations there are general contact links such as email linkedin twitter etc for you there on the website And finally, for those of you that want more than just an audio conversation, the video recordings are now going to be up on YouTube for the newer conversations. So feel free to check out the videos by searching for Automated Podcast on YouTube, where of course you can like and subscribe if you prefer to support the podcast that way. The Automated Podcast.